Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians this week, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to read just verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Actually, let's go back to chapter 2 and read beginning in verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 3, verse 4. That way you'll, if, if you've forgotten, maybe this will tie these two chapters together. You know there was no uh, large, bold number 3 in the original writing. These chapters were introduced later. So this, this is all an argument here. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 14... The Apostle writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are a folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, or not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? This is God's Word. Let's let's pray and ask Him to help us. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity that we have to now consider it in some detail, and we pray that You'd help us. As we just read, apart from the work of Your Holy Spirit, these These words lay closed to us and they lay darkened to us, but by the power of your Spirit they can be given light and we can be given understanding. So I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves rightly in light of what we see here. And I pray that you would grant us a greater and more holy walk with you. Lord, grant us those basic graces of repentance and faith. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we often say, you've heard me say it many times, you'll hear me say it many times, children, if there's one thing you can build upon as you begin to read the Scriptures, it's this. The Bible is a book about God. It does teach us a lot about ourselves, but it is primarily a book about God. God. It reveals to us who God is. And if we wanted to summarize or, or encapsulate the primary message that God seems to have uh, sought to use to convey the fullness of His character to us, it would be found in the Scripture, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a statement teaching us about God because Christ Jesus is God the Son. He's God in the flesh. How does God feel about sinners? Well, 
God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. That's, that's the, the summary of the teaching of the Bible. Yes, there are other peripheral things that we have to understand and we cannot neglect, but if we wanted to bring all of God's revelation to a focal point, we would say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The law and justice of God demanded satisfaction for the crimes that we have committed. We call them sins. We have sinned against God, and God is good. He's, he's, he's really good. God is so good it makes us uncomfortable. God is so good that when we sin, He says, that has to be dealt with. That cannot be, it cannot be allowed to just go. There must be justice, and God's law must be satisfied And the Bible teaches that the life and death of Jesus Christ is what satisfied those demands. Completely. God, as if He were at any point unhappy, we could say God with the death and or the life and death of Christ, we see God or the fullest expression of His happiness. God, as it were, reaches the apex of His happiness as His Son lives and dies in the place of sinners, and as we see Christ living and dying in the place of sinners, God points that to us and says, that's who I am. That's what you need to know about me, is that I send my Son into the world to save sinners. And the resurrection of Christ, which we honor every on the first day of every week, the resurrection of Christ was proof that God was satisfied. See, the curse of sin is death. Because Adam sinned, death passed upon all men. So Christ, entering into our law place, the Bible says, became a curse for us. The curse was laid upon Him. What's the curse? Death. He has to die. And that's the curse that He took with Him into His grave. But then three days later, when He rose from the dead, that was effectively His his display to all of creation. That curse has just lost its power. The curse is broken. Death has been defeated. It cannot rule and reign over the people of God anymore. He's satisfied the law and justice of God. And because of what Christ has done, we we have these benefits. Atonement for our sins has been made. A real, actual, effectual atonement has been made. God has been appeased. If you belong to Christ, when you sin, there can be a sense of fatherly displeasure in God, and at the same time, God can say, but I'm satisfied. I've already been appeased because of what Christ has done. We have that blessing. We have the, the forgiveness of our sins, which is, is separate. God can actually get, forgive us of our sins. And there is a, a just basis for that. Atonement's been made. He can forgive us, and it's not unjust. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have even the hope of heaven and eternal life. Because of what Christ has done. There's something wrought in us, birthed in us, that is what the Bible calls the hope of heaven. Now all of these are blessings that come to us growing out of the soil, we might say, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me, make, let me explain what I mean by that. Because Christ said that the Spirit is, is that water in us which wells up into eternal life. The Spirit comes to dwell in us and applies the benefits of what Christ has done to us. He applies the atoning work of Christ to our souls through faith. The Spirit gives us that sense 
of sins forgiven. If you've ever, if you've ever actually come to that feeling, that, rec- that, that, that conviction, that realization, my sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit did that. He worked that in you. He gave you that, that sense of, sense of sins forgiven. He, he gives us the hope of heaven in our heart. He produces that. If you have a confidence, you know heaven's mine. There, there's a journey between here and there, but heaven is mine. That doesn't come naturally. The Spirit gives that. The Spirit of God is even referred to in Scripture as the promise of the Father. The promise. Everything that we get, we say it's all found in Christ. And yet, apart from the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, these, these blessings remain out of our reach. The, 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 apart from the Spirit, the work of Christ is unavailable. We can't get there. I wasn't there when it happened. I didn't watch it. I didn't see it. I can't even have the faith to believe it if the Spirit doesn't help me and give me that faith. Apart from the Spirit, it's unavailable. And so we should never downplay or ignore the promise and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I think we often have that tendency that we, we will glorify the Father. We praise the Son for His atoning work and then we, we just sort of neglect the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity who is just as much God as the others, the other persons... We should worship and adore and express our utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we have no salvation. Apart from the Son of God, we have no salvation. Apart from the Father, we have no salvation. We we cannot do without any divine person of the Holy Trinity. So these things come to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's this presence and power of the Holy Spirit that typically... Uh, causes uh, Christianity to fly in the face of the world in which we live. And what I mean is, if you, if you think about the lost world, they don't really mind a religion that stays in the abstract and goes unseen. Whatever you, whatever you do in the privacy of your own home, nobody cares. Well, the problem with Christianity is, and the problem with the indwelling Holy Spirit is, a true Christian cannot keep their religion, the practice of their devotion to God, behind the doors of their home. We can't. The, The world hates a religion that produces concrete, observable differences that shine a light on sin. That's what they hate. They hate the religion that flows from the work of the Spirit of God. If there were no Holy Spirit in us, if there were no real observable changes, they wouldn't care. Oh, you believe some things and you do some things at home, that's fine. But the Spirit of God comes in and changes us, yes, in our homes, yes, behind closed doors, but we can't leave our houses without, we ought not to be able to leave our houses without being a light shining upon the sins of the world. And that's what they hate. Our world says things like, well, you should never judge a book by its cover. That you can't really know the contents of the heart by what's happening on the outside. I think they would even say you shouldn't be able to see the contents of the heart based on the outside. Whatever you have to do with the outside to, to cloak the inner person, they would say that's what you need to do. Don't, don't, don't let people see the true you. Cloak it with something. They despise a visible and observable Christianity. 
which is the kind of Christianity produced by the Spirit of God. They hate that. Our Lord said in Matthew 7, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now there he's talking about false teachers. But the rule applies across the board. Jesus doesn't use the metaphor of a book and its cover. He uses a tree and its fruit. And in John 15, he applies the same thing to Christians. In John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How can we prove that we're Christians? Bear fruit. What if there's no fruit? Then you can't prove it. All you've got is profession. All you've got is words. You did not choose me, he said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Christians bear fruit. We, the Christian proves that he is a disciple of Jesus by his fruit. We are chosen by Christ in order to, or for the purpose of, bearing fruit. And again, all of this is just the manifestation of the Spirit of God in us. As God spoke by the prophet Ezekiel, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised it. If we have the Spirit, we will be walking in a certain way. And so because our salvation grows out of the soil of the indwelling Spirit of God, and the promise of that Spirit is that we will walk in God's statutes, obey God's commands, and bear good fruit in our lives, then we can say a true Christian can be judged by his or her fruit. A Christian cannot say, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. No, a Christian ought to say, God's Word says, you have every right to observe my fruit and make a determination based on God's Word. Now this doesn't mean an act here or there, but by the overall course of a person's life, you can make a proper judgment from the Scriptures. Christians bear the fruit of their Christianity for all to see because of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God. Now, we do have to take into account another factor into this, and it's the clear teaching of Scripture and our experience that the Christian life is one of growth, just like fruit on a tree. It's one of growth. It's one of progress. We all start out as infants or babes in Christ. Every believer starts out that way. And the Bible gives us this expectation that there will be growth. That we, Though we start out as infants, we will progress to children. Then we will progress to the state that is called the young men. And then we will progress to the state that is called the old men. That, that's the, the hope. That's the progress that's laid out for us or the desire. And we have to keep that in mind that there, there is advancement. There is a progress or a process. And in the earliest stages of our walk with Christ, when we're infants in Christ, the fruit is going to look different than it will in its later stages. If we expect an infant Christian to act like a full-grown, mature Christian, we're out of our minds. And we deny the Scriptures. It's, it can't happen because of what the Scriptures lay out for us as, as to how this works. And oftentimes it's actually difficult to decipher some things for a young Christian. Now, 
judge for yourself, is this not what we do? We, we often judge positively one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and zeal. Right there. I can see it. I can observe it. That person's truly been born again. Well, is that not the exact soil that Christ said is very often withers away because it has no root? Why would we judge that to be the true conversion? The one that somehow shows immediate mature fruit from the very beginning. That doesn't make any sense. We have to learn how to judge these things. And, and again, the point is very often it's hard to decipher. The real fruit of a true conversion can sometimes be difficult to discern or at least pinpoint in the early stages of one's walk with Christ. If you don't, if you don't understand that, your life with your children is going to be horrific. Because you're going to say, produce this fruit that my granddaddy produced on his deathbed, or you're not a Christian. And you'll beat them down in their faith, and you'll make them miserable for their whole lives, and they'll doubt their salvation forever. We have to understand that every Christian starts out as an infant, and sometimes the fruit is difficult to discern. Sadly, the fruit of spiritual infancy is most clearly recognized when it's still being produced into what should be spiritual adulthood. We might not immediately recognize an infant Christian immediately upon their new birth, but we clearly recognize an infant Christian when they ought to be an adult. Let me illustrate that. If you've got a newborn and it's craving its mother's milk, it's taking its mother's milk, that's normal. It's acting like an infant. But even, and every mother in here knows this, in those early stages when, it, when, it, when you're new to this, there will be a few days or maybe even weeks where that baby actually begins to lose a little weight before it begins to put back on weight. And if you're not aware of that, you might begin to wonder, is this child doing what an infant is supposed to be doing? Is this child thriving? Is this normal? Or is this child dying? And you wonder, well, I don't know. We've got to go to the doctor and check it out. Things are not that great. And, and maybe something is wrong. Maybe something is not wrong. But that just is, is those, in those early stages, it's kind of hard to discern. It's hard to read. And the question is, is this baby acting like a baby ought to act? Is this normal for a baby? Now, an old man who still craves his mother's milk and could only survive off of his mother's milk, that's not difficult to diagnose. We would say, there is a problem here. We, we have a, a, the, an issue of severe degradation and danger. He, as an adult, is acting like a baby ought to act. It's very obvious, even though it's not right. It's a problem. And this can be true for Christians as well. It's the sad case of a Christian who is stunted in their growth. A Christian who ought to be acting like a mature saint, but instead is still a spiritual infant. That's the case of the saints in Corinth. That's where they were. They had the Holy Spirit... Paul is addressing them as believers, and yet they were babies. They were infants in Christ. And as we pick up in chapter 3 of this epistle, we find the Apostle Paul still trying to defend himself, still defending and explaining the Christian ministry to them. And he's doing that against those who, would, who had already begun to doubt and discredit his ministry, but who were themselves spiritual infants. They were, they were discrediting and doubting the apostle, and he's trying to get them to see, you're still infants. That's what he's doing here. In verses 1 through 4, 
we find him addressing the strange and inappropriate situation where true Christians are centered on Christ with regard to their profession. Christ is the fundamental basis of their confession. But practically, they are still centered on themselves. The strange and inappropriate situation where true Christians are centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession, but are practically still centered on themselves. That's what he's confronting here. And I've broken this section up into three headings. First, Paul recounts his ministry, then he explains his approach, and then he appeals to his audience. So look with me at beginning in verse 1. Paul recounts his ministry. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. There's a striking parallel here between the way he starts this chapter and the way that he began chapter 2. He's returning to his initial ministry among them. He's addressing his ministerial philosophy when he first went to Corinth. He's talking about those days, the old days. But now instead of focusing on what he was sent to do as an apostle... He's addressing what he was unable to do with them because of their immaturity. And he states it first negatively. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now we need to ask again, who are the spiritual people here? We considered three options last week. Since we we know that Paul is clearly talking about someone besides himself, we can rule that out. The other two options for the spiritual person or the spiritual people here are all Christians... Or mature Christians. There is a sense in which every Christian is a spiritual person. Every Christian has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Every Christian is a new creature in Christ. Every creature is in, or every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God. But we noted that that, how, that, that wouldn't really fit the way Paul is, is talking here. If he's referring to all Christians, then he would be saying here, I couldn't address you as Christians, but as infants in Christ. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you're in Christ, infant or old man, you're a Christian. So that doesn't really make any sense. It it would contradict what he's saying. I think the more favorable option is that he's referring to spiritually mature saints. Much in the same way that he he uses this phrase in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore him. John Gill describes these saints as, quote, such as live and walk in the Spirit and are strong and stand by the power and grace of the Spirit of God as opposed to the weak. So the spiritual people, you who are spiritual, these are strong saints as opposed to weak saints, or mature saints as opposed to infantile saints. Not that there are different levels or categories or that you must... um, you'll be able to clearly discern as you move from one step to another and one can say, I have reached adulthood while you are an infant. It's, it's not like there are different kinds of Christians. Just in the growth and process of our, of our Christian walk, we, we hit these stages. These are the strong or mature as opposed to the weak and immature. Now, if we take that sense, then Paul would be saying effectively, I couldn't address you as strong, mature saints, but as infants in Christ. That makes a lot more sense. I hope that you can see that. In a few words, he's going to say, I fed you with milk. Well, milk in this sense only ever applies to those who've been born of the Spirit of God. It's an infant, a newborn who gets the milk. 
So he's addressing them as Christians, but he's saying that he couldn't address them as mature Christians, as strong Christians, as those who are spiritual. Positively, he says, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. If we, if we reworded it or, or smashed it together, it's as if he's saying, I, brothers, addressed you as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. Well, now we have a different category of people. I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh or carnal. What, what, what does that mean? Who, who are these people? Well, people of the flesh here is parallel to the phrase in verse 3, only human. And in verse 4, merely human. These are terms referring to the human nature in its corrupt condition. Now pay attention here because some of this language could get confusing. This is parallel when he says of the flesh or carnal or or merely human. These are all parallels to what he calls or called the natural person in chapter 2 verse 14. Man without God. Man guided by his own passions and not God. So to be of the flesh is to be governed and guided by the appetites of one's natural condition apart from God. Now, you say, well, I thought you said that the natural person was a lost person. And you are correct. That, that is exactly Paul's point. When Paul says, I addressed you as people of the flesh, he's, he's saying more about the manner of his address than the state of the Corinthians. He's not saying, now you Corinthians are lost people. Or, now you Corinthians, you're, you're saved people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I came to you, I could not address you this way. I had to address you this way. He's still defending his ministry. The focal point is defending his work among them. And notice that he never says they are literally of the flesh. He doesn't say you are fleshly people, you are lost people, you are natural people. He doesn't say that. He says that he had to tailor his address to them as if they were of the flesh. I could not address you this way. I had to address you this way. Now we say, again, I thought the natural person was a lost person. And that's kind of what he's getting at, although he's not ascribing lostness to them. He's saying, I had to address you as people who were being led and guided by your flesh rather than by God. I had to talk to you that way. I had to minister to you that way. And notice how he places this phrase, of the flesh, right beside the next phrase, as infants in Christ. So people of the flesh is explained further by the next phrase, infants in Christ. Now this helps us to answer the question, what is an infant in Christ? Well, it's one who is either a truly newborn saint or one who has been a saint for some time but has not grown or advanced in grace as they should. So they are still in, in an infantile stage, we might say. Now listen. Because sanctification is a process, 
Yes, it is definitive, and there is a definitive aspect to it. And there's also a progressive aspect to it. If you progress, you start at a, at a minimal place, and you advance to the maximum, right? That's progression. If you start at the maximum and go down, that's not progression, that's degression. Sanctification, as it works itself out in us subjectively, is a process, which means the newborn saint will usually be more pervasively influenced by the remnants of their corruption than a seasoned saint who's had more time to mortify their flesh by the power of the Spirit and, and to put on grace and grow in grace. That's, that's, that's a progress, right? You see that? Hopefully that's logical. The newborn saint is usually going to be more pervasively influenced by the remnants of their corruption. And over time, the remnants of that corruption will be done away with, and that's how they grow. That's not typically how we judge people, is it? Or how we think about the Christian life. In our post-revivalist mentality, we often, we hear these stories all the time, remember that zeal you had when you were first converted and how it's just waned. Well, is sanctification backwards? Have you gotten less holy? Are you not growing? Are you digressing? Or is it perhaps that in those early stages, that zeal might have been a manifest manifestation of a little bit of remaining corruption without knowledge? I'm not saying that it's all negative, but we, we typically assume zeal good. And by zeal, we mean what I can see of it. Boy, they were, they were just immediately out on the street preaching. Okay, so they were kind of, in our present state of the church, kind of disobedient. Because that's not how preaching and, and things work. They, they come in through the church and are trained and qualified and sent out as mature saints. That's how it ought to work. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad, but that's how we gauge things. That's the good. But then you've got the old, experienced, aged saint who's mortified their flesh for decades. And maybe they're not out on the street sweating and spitting and, and everything else. And we think, man, I wish people would really get on fire for the Lord. Where, where's the Holy Spirit at? We judge it backwards because we judge by what we can see very often. Zeal is good, and by zeal we mean what I can see. Think about Christ. Uh, he goes into the temple. He, he braids a whip, chases people out of the temple. And then we read after that that, that's, that they saw that manifestation or the application of that text, zeal for your house has consumed me, right? So that means whenever he got done and he was done chasing people out and he went off into the wilderness at some point to pray by himself, that right there he had no zeal for the Father's house. All his zeal was gone. We would say, no, that's crazy. He always had zeal for his Father's house. There were times when we seen it times when we didn't see it. Zeal doesn't have to be only what we can see. There can be zeal, good zeal, even within. We, we often judge it wrongly. We judge it backwards because of what we can see. We want to see the show. We want to see the flare. And when it comes to sanctification, very often we describe a Christian life that for many people would be absolutely backwards. Boy, they started off super sanctified and now they do nothing. Well, that's not, that's not Christianity. That's not how this works. 
maybe they started out very openly and outwardly zealous, like an infant comes out of the womb if it's healthy, it's screaming. But if that infant never stopped screaming and is still screaming at five years old like an infant, you would say, something's not right here. Well, it might just be that some of that, that sensitivity of coming out of the womb has, has, has developed and has grown into a, a more uh, able human being that can endure the elements around them. They don't have to be swaddled immediately to be happy. They, they learn to cope with their surroundings. And very often the Christian life is like that. We come out super sensitive and maybe screaming with zeal. And over time we are sanctified to where we can level back out and we're able to endure a long process of walking with the Lord and especially the attacks of the enemy. But we judge these things very often backwards. Sanctification starts off with every Christian as a newborn. And a newborn is going to be less sanctified than an older saint, which means that there is going to be a more prevalent influence of their remaining corruption. Now what Paul's getting at here is the same can be true for a saint that's been a saint for some time. They've been a Christian for a few years, and yet for, for some reason, their, the, rem the remnants of their corruption still remain in, to an ex extent that they shouldn't. Maybe they've not taken the steps to use the Spirit's power and mortify their flesh and grow in grace as they should. Whatever it might be. As, as some have said, a flower planted in the desert is not going to grow and flourish quite as well as a, a, a flower planted in, in a tropical climate. And there are often providential things that surround a believer that, that will hinder whether or not they advance or grow like every other Christian. Some people are plopped into a place like Corinth where Paul comes through, Apollos comes through, Peter comes through, all of these wonderful preachers, for those people, after several years, they should have been greatly advanced. They should have. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. He fed them, in other words, as if they were infants. His manner of instruction was tailored to their spiritual state. And I'm not going to go into the difference between milk and solid food because I, I really don't think it's nearly as significant as most people make it out to be. But what he's saying is, I was, he, he's saying to them, I was limited when I came to you because of your spiritual condition. Their infancy showed him, hey, I need to st stay back and give them what is tailored to their needs. And so as Paul recounts his ministry among them, this time he focuses on what he couldn't do because of their spiritual status. They were truly Christians, but they were not yet mature. They were infants. And so he fed them with milk. And so far, we don't have a problem. He hasn't said anything here that's wrong. And we have to keep that in our minds, that babies need baby food. That, that's not wrong. Your, your infant is not in, in, in dire need of a doctor visit because it's eating baby food. That's what it ought to be doing. So no problem here. Baby Christians need food suited for baby Christians. So that's what Paul gave them. They were still, as young saints, in many ways under the influence of their flesh, and they needed the milk of Christ and Him crucified, the virtue of which was meant to serve them in crucifying their own flesh so that they would grow. That's what Paul gave them, milk. Number two, Paul explains his approach. He, he goes on to explain why this was his method. The end of verse 2 and through in, or into verse 3, he says, For you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready 
for you are still of the flesh. First, he describes their state in the past. For you were not ready in the past. When I came to you, I could minister or preach to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, for you were not ready back then. You weren't ready. And again, that's not strange. There's nothing weird about that. All Christians begin as infants. All Christians need food suited to their state. Even Christ Himself to His disciples said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear them yet. There wasn't anything wrong with that. In a parallel passage in Hebrews 5, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now that's a more negative sense, but the, the idea is Christians need something that is tailored to where they are. And so it's not strange or odd that we must grow as saints and that there are times when we're not yet ready to move forward. That it's not strange that we might have a, a point in our, in our walk where we're not able to digest something that a more advanced Christian can digest. That's not strange. No problem yet. Then he addresses the problem. Because he moves to their present condition. He says, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. When he first went, of course, they're infants. Makes perfect sense. New converts. Now, again, probably several years later, some say somewhere around five years later, he says, you're still in the same condition. Nothing's happened. You've not grown. You're still, you, you, you remain as of the flesh. There's been no movement. You're still governed and guided by the appetites of your condition apart from God. Now again, they are the church, sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. They've been called into the fellowship of God's Son. He even says in this verse, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. They're Christians, they're believers, and yet they're still governed and guided by the appetites of their natural condition apart from God. And so as, as Paul explains his ministry, he says, back then... I use this method because you were infants in Christ and you, you, were, you were very much guided by your flesh. You needed certain kinds of, of ministerial food. And he says, and even now, years later, I have to take the same route with you because nothing's changed. You're still in the same place you were in before. That, that's the problem. It's not that they started off as infants, but they're still infants. Thirdly, Paul appeals to his audience. He appeals to his audience. Now, I want to address something because there are some people who would appeal to what we have read so far, and, and they have created an entire theology called the doctrine of the carnal Christian. And they would say, see right here, we've got Christians, but they're still babies. And, and the idea behind this doctrine is that someone can be truly converted and yet live lives substantially unchanged. And this is, again, a result of our, our revivalist history. Somebody comes into the church, they get really emotional, walk down the aisle, pray a prayer, they, they, they uh, make some sort of profession of faith, maybe even they're baptized, maybe even they join the church, and then you, they taper off, you really never see them again. They go right back to their ways, they live the rest of their life in the world like a lost person, and at their funeral, they say, well, I remember that time they, they asked Jesus to come into their heart, they prayed the prayer, they were baptized. They're in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this is teaching. 
along with that, you'll often hear people say that someone accepted Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. He saved them from their sins, but somehow as Savior, He wasn't Lord enough to change their lives. He left them in their, in their sinful condition. That's not biblical. The problem with this is that Paul had a problem with this. Anytime you go to the Scriptures and you see what the Apostle is rebuking, and you say, well, see right there? I'm just what he's rebuking. You should then go on to say, right, I, I, now I see, I should be rebuked. I'm wrong, not right. I don't create a theology of Christian living based on what they were doing in error. When this was said of the Corinthians, it was to their shame. What he's saying is you're, you're in the wrong. Something is wrong here. It's a rebuke. And by the end of the second letter, Paul has to say, you need to examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith. You, get, you keep going down this track and you're going to prove that whatever happened in the past was not real. Because when a person is truly converted, though there, there is infancy, there will come growth at some pace, at some level throughout their lives. God does not simply leave us to our sins. It, it was a problem that he's addressing. If there's no change, there's no salvation. Why? Because a part of salvation is the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're changed. And even here, Paul doesn't say, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, and that's actually quite normal. Just keep doing what you're doing. doesn't say that. He appeals to them and their own Christian sensibility, what they ought to have known from his teaching, to verify that their condition is not good. Notice what he says. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's asking them. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Two rhetorical questions. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Are you not being merely human? In other words, are you not, Corinthians, are you not showing by your behavior that you're still influenced by your fleshly appetites rather than by the Spirit of God. And he almost beckons them to answer. Speak up. Is this not true? Have I said anything that's false? And we've already seen their problem. They're quarreling. They've divided over their favorite preachers. Here he says there's jealousy and strife. That word jealousy is the word for zeal. There's zeal. Again, now we hear zeal, good. He says, here's the problem. There's zeal. And it's leading to strife. It could be good zeal. It could be bad zeal. The, the, the ESV translates it jealousy. It refers, this word refers to intense, personal craving for or desire after something. That's why it would translate into jealousy. Intense, personal craving. And then there's strife. Same word that was used in chapter 1 for their quarreling. Contention, bitter conflict, heated dissension. There's zeal and bitter conflict. Jealousy, craving, personal craving leading to heated dissension. One commentator defines these words this way. Jealousy... The desire that the self may have the status. And strife, the expression of this desire in active stat strategies to gain advantage for the self. Self, self, self. 
He says both terms are concerned with advancing the claims and interests of the self. And is this not the chief obsession of the natural man? Self. Me. I want. You don't want what I want? Then I'm coming after you because I want what I want. And you're opposing me in what I want. And you're opposing what I want. It's, it's all about self. Man apart from God, living according to the flesh, is obsessed with self. And so he appeals to them. He assumes that they can reason among themselves well enough to understand that where there is jealousy and strife, the flesh, the self, is in control. And these come to the surface anytime a man acts apart from God. Anytime man sets aside the guidance of the Spirit and says, Lord, I got this one, it's straight back to self. That compass goes to self immediately. Anytime we walk apart from God. Paul lists among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. What do we see in this letter? It's, it's, it is that, exactly. The works of the flesh. James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Unspiritual. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as unspiritual. Why? Well, because there's jealousy and selfish ambition. You're focused on yourself, and that's leading to strife. The Corinthians were boasting in their favorite preachers, letting their own pride and zeal for their own desires take over, and that had led to strife. There was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Selfishness had led to rivalry and dissension and division. In other words, their actions were showing that it was their flesh, their self, that was in control. Regardless of their confession of the Lordship of Christ, regardless of their boasting and all of their so-called spiritual gifts, regardless of all of the good preaching and teaching that they had heard, their actions proved that they were at best infants, at best Baby Christians who were casting shade and doubt on the ministry of the Apostle of Christ. And it was their infancy or their immaturity that placed limits on what Paul could give them by way of instruction. You think he didn't want to go further with them? Of course he did. But he says, I couldn't. When I first came, you were infants. Even now, you're infants. I can't go any further until you advance, he's saying. Perhaps Apollos had come too soon. Perhaps their fleshly Grecian appetites were stirred by Apollos' eloquence. And they, that, that fed their flesh a little bit. And as Apollos preached and, and watered what Paul had planted, perhaps that began to puff them up with knowledge. And they, were, they got to get a little bit of taste of what they had come out of. And they become conceited and they had become boastful, much like the many thousands of YouTube-fed Christians in our day. They don't know that they're infants, but you can get any level of teaching at your fingertips that can actually be detrimental for an infant Christian because it puffs them up and they don't realize I'm still an infant. They think, well, I know all the things. And then they begin to war against men who've spent years and years and years in the ministry like the Apostle Paul. One commentator, Kim Riddlebarger, says, instead of focusing upon God and His purposes made manifest in the preaching of Christ crucified, 
the Corinthians are focusing upon their personal and selfish agendas. End quote. The Corinthians are focusing on their personal and selfish agendas. The Corinthians are focusing on their personal and selfish agendas. That was the problem in Corinth. That was the sin that needed to be addressed. Love of self had replaced love for Christ and love for the brethren. Self was on the throne. As I said, it's the strange and inappropriate situation where true Christians are centered on Christ as a fundamental basis of their confession with their mouths, but practically they're still centered on themselves. They're true Christians, and with their mouths they say everything right, but when you get down to the practical actions of their lives, you say, they live like everybody else. They're just like the world. Maybe not as wicked, openly wicked as the world, but when it comes to what's guiding them, it's just self. They don't bring God into their situation. Can we even imagine such a people? Christians who are centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession, but are practically still centered on themselves? Perhaps it might be more helpful to ask the opposite. Can we imagine a group of Christians centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession and also practically in their lives truly, fully, wholly given over in obsession to Jesus Christ? Can you imagine such a people? I would venture to say we cannot even imagine it. You describe the Corinthians, we say, I lived in that, I grew up in that, it's all around me, that's all I know. You imagine the opposite, we say, I wonder what that would look like. A group of Christians actually, legitimately, fully, wholly, truly, given over in obsession to Christ? Well, I don't know, that would be, that might be strange. Can, can you imagine a group of Christians who not only confess Christ as Lord, but live their lives hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly in wholesale abandonment of self in order to pour themselves out at the feet of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine that? Again, it's difficult for us because the state of the Corinthians is probably more aligned with the state of the church in our day than, than the opposite. This is all we've known. This is our problem. The strange and inappropriate situation where true Christians are centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession, but are practically still centered on themselves. I say it's strange, not because it's uncommon, but because it should never be accepted as normal. Ever. This, this is not normal. It might be normal in experience. It should not be accepted as normal. We have been given the Spirit of God... He's promised us that He would cause us to walk in His ways. He's left us with His Word. He's left us with His promise that He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's left us of the promise of victory and eternal life. Should it not be strange that in spite of all of that and in spite of what we confess, we would still live centered on ourselves? That the flesh would still guide the way we think and act? Isn't it odd that we would go on for years 
still under the influence of our own carnal lusts and impulses? While it might be a pervasive problem in our modern times, it should always be strange. I say that it's inappropriate because it's just that. It's not appropriate. It's not right. It's not true to the reality of people who say they've been born again by the Spirit of God, who say they've been filled with the Spirit of God, that say Christ is their Lord and Master, that they are His disciples, but then they live their lives following their self. That's not appropriate. That's wrong. That's sinful. It's contrary to who God is. It's contrary to who we are as Christians. It ought not to be. But sadly, as we see in in this passage and in our experience, it can be found in true Christians. It is possible. It's not right. We should never accept it as normative, but it is possible. And this serves to rebuke us. Why does Paul have to say in Galatians 5, But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's because even Christians can fall into this trap of gratifying the flesh. Walking by or according to the desires of the flesh. And it can be found among those who are confessedly Christ-centered. There was a big movement years ago, some of you remember, the Christ-centered movement. Everything's Christ-centered. Christ-centered church, Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered shoes, Christ-centered shirts, Christ-centered stickers, everything. Everything, Christ-centered. But it was all talk. Because there wasn't really a whole, a whole lot about Christ. But it was the words. And there are people, and we might even be those people, who are confessedly, in our verbiage, Christ-centered. It's all about Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. All the time, Christ. Go home, self. It's got nothing to do with Christ. Every Christian should confess Christ as the center of all that we are and do, but how often is it true that regardless of that confession, practically speaking, we're still all about ourselves? That is, in practice, in the general tenor of life, in the regular movements of the heart and the mind and the body, we still conduct ourselves according to the fleshly lusts that are there remaining from our corruption, those impulses of the flesh, the appetites of man apart from God. How often are we still self-driven, self-propelled, self-motivated? This is our problem, not just the Corinthians. The strange and inappropriate situation where true Christians are centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession, but practically are focused on themselves, are still centered on themselves. This type of living causes quarrels. This is what self-centered, or the self-centered life had produced in Corinth. Quarrels. They were fighting because they were self-centered. James, again, he says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Where there are quarrels and fights and divisions among Christians, it's because we are allowing the flesh to rule. We are allowing self to rule. We want, we crave, we desire something, and our zeal to have our own desires puts us at odds with one another. But it also puts us at odds with God because God is not going to bend His work to satisfy your carnal lusts. He's not going to do that. And He's not going to allow His work and His Word to be used to justify self-centeredness. He won't. 
And this was the condition of the Corinthians. Their infancy, manifesting itself in these quarrels and selfishness, was the reason that they couldn't be given the strong meat. Right? They're, they're pounding the table with their fork. Strong meat, strong meat, strong meat. Paul won't give it to them. Oh, this Paul, what does he know? You remember how he, how he looked and how he talked? I don't think he's really all that he's cracked up to be. What Paul's saying is, I want to give it, but you're not ready. It wasn't his fault. It was theirs. Their immaturity, their sinful immaturity was limiting what they could receive from God. It had put them at odds with God. When selfish lusts and pride lead to factions and divisions, you are not in a state to receive with meekness the implanted word because you're not being meek. It's the very opposite of meekness. Self-centeredness and self-promotion is the opposite of a meek spirit. And is this all not what Paul just said? I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I couldn't teach you the way I wanted to teach you because of your sinful immaturity. When we are in a disposition that is focused on ourselves, that in itself stunts your ability to receive the Word of God. When, when you're focused on self, you're not in a condition to receive. And when that disposition puts us at odds with other saints, well, it's even worse. We, we, we have effectively roped ourselves off. Christ wants to lead us to the green pastures and He puts us out with the adult sheep and we start fighting and we start bickering and He says, nope, back in the bottle pen. You've got to be bottle fed some more. You're not ready to be out. I cannot give you what these others are getting. You're not in a state to receive it. It, it ruins our walk when we turn in on ourselves. And it limits what we can receive even from the hand of God. Selfishness and factionalism generally just clouds the mind. You can't think clearly when you have thoughts of war and battle on your mind. You can't, you can't think clearly. That's just common sense. And it causes doubt. If you know you're not thinking clearly, but you're hearing the word going forth, afterwards you say, are you convinced and convicted of what you heard? You'd say, I, I don't really know what I heard. My mind was clouded. I couldn't focus. I, I'm not sure. There goes your doubt. Selfishness and factionalism creates unnecessary divisions over things that should be held in common. Doctrines that should be agreed upon by everybody all of a sudden become areas of division simply because they're held by somebody we oppose. Well, if they believe that, well, and I'm, I'm going to have to believe the opposite just because I don't like them. There should have never been any confusion in Corinth about Paul versus Apollos. That should have never been a question. You know they preach the same gospel. But because they had this attitude of selfishness, they began to fight. Selfishness and factionalism turns everything into either a shield or a weapon. When you're in a fight, everything is either a shield or a weapon. Every, anything you can grab. You're going to use whatever you can grab to either defend yourself or use it against somebody else as a weapon. Well, when this is your attitude of selfishness 
And factionalism, you're defending yourself, you're fighting against others. Every text of Scripture you read is either perfectly justifying you in whatever you have thought up until this point. See it right there? I knew I was right. Or, see right there? I knew they were wrong when God might be saying, no, you're wrong. Read it again as if it's talking about you. But that's our, our minds are not in a place to receive the Word when we are turned in ourselves. We cannot receive the Word with meekness. And you don't want to be in this position. We don't want to be in this position. The strange and inappropriate situation where a true Christian is centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession. But practically, they're centered on themselves. Now most of us are nice people. Most of us are nice people. So whenever we, we become self-centered, most of the time we're able to maintain enough decency that we, we don't immediately go on a war path against other people. So it might not look like it did in Corinth, but we can just go back to that first step. Just selfishness. Just self. Just self. So maybe you're that person that you have found yourself in the strange and inappropriate situation where you confess Christ, but practically you're still selfish. You're focused on yourself. You would confess Jesus Christ as Lord and God. You would confess the biblical gospel. You would confess Christ alone as the salvation of men. You would say to the whole world, I am a Christian. And you may be. But practically speaking, in the general tenor of your life and in the details of your life, you're still basically governed by the flesh. Is that you? Let me read you some scriptures. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now let's say that I came and I sat down beside you. Or I come to you this afternoon privately at lunch and I say, Hey, where have you denied yourself to follow Christ? What would be your answer? Where, just tell me, just give me, I don't know, three, three places. Give me, keep it at three, short list. Where have you actually denied yourself to follow Christ? Where have you denied your fleshly appetites on account of following Christ? Where has your general human appetite craved something? And I'm not talking about pregnancy cravings and boy, I sure would like some of this or that. I'm talking about the things of the corrupt flesh. Where has, have you craved something? You've looked at the world and you say, I want that thing. I want something out there. But for the sake of following Christ, you said, no. I'm a Christ follower now. That thing might be good or bad. Maybe it's perfectly fine. Maybe it's neutral. But you say, I'm a Christ follower. And I don't need that. When and where have you actually denied yourself? Where in life are you carrying a cross? An instrument of, of the fact that you've been crucified to the world. Where? What, what if I asked you at lunch today? Where? What's your answer going to be? Where can you point? Maybe a time, a place, a situation, a circumstance, a relationship, a financial decision. You can point to and you can say, yeah, right back there, my flesh wanted blank. But I said, you know what, I've crucified that flesh. I turned away from it. I've died to the world. What if today at lunch I sit down beside you and I say, when and where are you settled 
on following Christ? What would you say? Most of us would, would give our profession of faith. We'd confess Him as Lord and say, I'm following Him. I didn't say that. When and where? Where is it happening? Where are you legitimately, verifiably, observably given over to serve Christ? If somebody came to you at a time other than the Lord's Day, would they say, this person is devoted to Jesus Christ? Because that's what it means to follow after. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And Jesus said this is a fundamental prerequisite for following him, to be his disciple, not saying words. Not mouthing a confession, not even holding up or agreeing to a doctrinal statement or joining a church. He said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. If you can't do that, you can't be my follower. That's what he said. I didn't make this up. Now the question is, have you done that? If not, you're still governed by the flesh. At best, you're a spiritual infant. But I, I, I don't want to even give the, the comfort of that. At worst, you're a false professor. Or another passage that we know well from Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So tell me, where have you proven to hate your own life. Now, I hope we understand the, 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 the hyperbole that he's using here. But I think we ought to be able to look point somewhere and say, right over there, that's where I have proven. I, I, I hate my life in comparison with Christ. Jesus says you cannot be his disciple if you can't even put your life and all of that that entails beneath him. You can't be his disciple. That's what he said. What if I said or asked you today, so tell me, how could you prove that you don't count your life as yours, but it's Christ? How could you prove that? How can you prove that you've given it to Him? What would you say? Well, I, I confess and believe and go to church. and Surely there's more to our life than that. Here's a good thermometer. When, or how often, or how much time have you or do you spend asking God, what should I do? How much time do you spend asking God, what should I do? When have you done that? God, what should I do? How often do you pray that? God, it's not my life, it's yours. What should I do? You tell me. I've got some extra money, Lord. How should I use it? You tell me. I got some free time, Lord. How should I use it? You tell me. I got some vacation days saved up, Lord. How should I use it? You tell me. You're Lord. I'm not. I've, died. I've denied myself. I'm dead. You tell me, Lord. It's not my life. It's yours, Lord. What should I do? What about this week? What are you doing this week? Did you ask the Lord at all? Hey, Lord, should I be doing this? Is, is this the direction I should go? Lord, you tell me what I should do. Or even this afternoon. Lord, what should I do? And is that, that attitude normal for you? Is that normative for you to say, I've denied myself. I'm dead. Lord, you tell me what to do. Because see, for some people, you, 
in these situations, you would ask, how can I serve you, Lord? I got some extra money, got some extra time, got some vacation days. Lord, how can I serve you with them? But for many, even professing Christians, the first thought is, how can I serve myself? Aha, extra money. What can I do? How can I, how can I serve myself? I got some time. How can I pamper myself? And that's just selfishness. Self-centeredness. And it's not justified just because you claim to belong to Christ. Well, it's okay. Christ saved me so I can do whatever I want now. No, that's what the Corinthians were doing. In that portion of Luke 14, Christ was compelling the people to count the cost of following Him. And I wonder how many of us have ever actually had to count the cost of being a Christian. To be a Christian so far in our country has not cost us very much. How many of you have counted the cost of actually, seriously, legitimately surrendering yourself to the dictates of God in His Word? If you haven't, then your version of Christianity is a self-centered one that benefits you greatly but costs you nothing. It doesn't sound like the Christianity of Scripture. It's the strange and inappropriate situation where a true Christian is centered on Christ as the fundamental basis of their confession but they're practically still centered on themselves. Now, I'll close with this. Christians are known by their fruit. And one fruit of a Christian is the indwelling spirit. And one of the fruits of the indwelling spirit is repentance. Repentance. Because the life or because of the life and death of Jesus Christ, we can take our sins to our Father And He is faithful and just to forgive them and to grant us the grace of repentance. If your heart and life matches the attitude of the Corinthians where you claim Christ but you live for yourself, then you need to take that sin to God. And you need to confess it to Him. You need to seek His forgiveness. You need to ask Him for the strength to endeavor after new obedience. And you can do that with confidence because of what Christ has done. There's, there's, great, there's great hope for the believer. Christians are known by their fruit. And the fruit here is a life changed from serving self to serving Christ. Can you imagine a group of Christians centered on Christ as a fundamental basis of their confession and also practically in their lives, truly, fully, wholly given over in obsession to Jesus Christ? Can you imagine what that would look like? A group of people following Him utterly and completely in every matter? Well, may God grant it among us. Let's pray together.